You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Elon Musk is now the biggest shareholder in Twitter. Why does he want it, and what change will he push for? Or, now that shares have shot up 27% on news of his stake alone, could he just sell? We have this covered from all angles. Plus, we will hear directly from Okta CEO Todd McKinnon in his first interview since that massive third-party breach by the hacker group Lapsus was disclosed. What really happened and how are they addressing customer concerns? We will have all the details in an exclusive interview. And coming out of crypto's breakout year of 2021, what trends should we watch for now that greater adoption is underway from inflation to regulation? We'll speak with a top exec from the crypto platform Gemini about their latest global report. All of that in a moment, but first to the biggest story of the day, and that is Elon Musk and Twitter, the Tesla and SpaceX CEO disclosing in a filing that he now owns a 9.2% stake in Twitter worth somewhere around $3.7 billion now, making him the company's largest shareholder. The big question, how will he use this new power? Let's bring in Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. And the big question, Ed, is just how active is Elon Musk going to be? Yeah, well, it's the $3.7 billion question, isn't it? The devil's in the detail because the filing type he used, 13G, you're only eligible to do so if you have no intention of changing or trying to control the operations of the issuing company. In other words, you're a passive investor and not an activist investor. In any event, look at the board. 27% gain on Twitter, the best performing stock in the S&P 
500 on a day where we saw very muted moves across financial markets, various asset classes not moving strongly in either direction. But that gain in Twitter having a real effect on other social media stocks really pushing the Nasdaq 100 to show some outperformance when it comes to techno the technology sector broadly. Come with me to my Bloomberg terminal and let's just put some size and scope on this. This is the biggest jump in Twitter's stock since November 2013. In other words, the biggest jump Twitter's experienced since listing day. And Em, I know that you were there, right, in 2013. You witnessed that IPO, the massive surge in Twitter's shares. And as you look at that chart on your screen, we haven't had many days like that for Twitter since over the last decade. This is a stock that was underperforming year-to-date. It's now in positive territory year-to-date. But, you know, things have kind of lost momentum right since 2013, M. It has indeed. I was on there on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when Twitter went public. Thank you, Ed. Uh, I want to stick with Twitter now. As Ed said, the social platform gaining the most since its trading debut in 2013. Joining us to discuss, Katie Stanton, founder and general partner of Moxie Ventures and an early Twitter employee, as well as Bloomberg Sarah Fryer, who covers the company for us. Sarah, I'll start with you. The big question, why did Elon buy this stake? Well, I think that, that he has hinted a bit at why in the past few days among his, his beefs with Twitter is that he thinks that they aren't doing well on free speech. Well, you know, news to Elon, Twitter does not have a free speech commi commitment under the First Amendment. They are just a private company. But um, I do think that with this influence, with this power, even if it's a passive stake, he can exert some um, some behind the scenes influence over Twitter. Um, now, we don't know exactly what he's going to do, but it might have something to do with their content moderation efforts. Sarah, Katie, you worked at Twitter for almost six years until 2016, and you tweeted today, maybe pick up 9% of one of the top U.S. greenhouse gas emitters like Chevron or Exxon and accelerate their paths to clean energy. What is your initial reaction to Elon buying this stake? Yeah, well, I think it's a very expensive way to get yourself an edit button. Um, I think it's a very interesting move. Um, Elon is obviously a power user. He knows the product well. He knows that Twitter is the place for the world's conversation. But for Twitter, I think it's really tricky in two ways. First, as Sarah mentions, it's, it's really um, difficult. Elon has been very vocal about making Twitter an unfettered free speech platform. And this is part of the founding ethos of Twitter. But it's not an absolute, and it's really hard in social media. And we've seen the consequences of what happens when there's no accountability for when disinformation spreads. So it's complicated. And second, I think it's tricky because it, come, it becomes another distraction for the Twitter team. But I have full confidence in the Twitter team because they're used to all kinds of distractions. It's basically what we would have called a Monday. So on that note, uh, Twitter shares have languished for years despite all of this activity, you know, President Trump on the platform, so many ups and downs uh, when you look at just what happens on Twitter on a daily basis. You know, what do you make of the strategy that the current Twitter team is taking without Jack Dorsey there under new leadership of Parag Agrawal, Ned Siegel, the CFO? I'm a big fan. I think Jack has hired extremely well. I have worked side by side with Vijay Gade, the chief legal officer, with Kayvon Bakepour, the chief product officer. They're excellent. They're excellent what they do. They're thoughtful. They're ethical. I didn't work as closely with Parag, but I know he's very well respected by the team. He's well prepared. He's been at Twitter for a long time. He's technical. He has led the engineering team. So I'm, I'm very bullish and I'm very confident that the Twitter team will continue to evolve and protect the platform.
Sarah, Elon Musk, the way that he disclosed this indicates that he's not intending to be very active or join the board. I mean, maybe he just wants an expensive edit button, as Katie is alluding to. But how active do we expect him to be, knowing that Elon Musk doesn't just sit back and let things happen? Well, I think the most interesting thing will be any criticism he makes of Twitter now. Anything he says on Twitter about the company might move the stock. So we could be in for a few very volatile months ahead. But there's also the question of whether Twitter will feel that they can moderate Elon Musk now. Should he violate the rules? Would they take down their biggest shareholder? That's a question I have. We're still waiting to hear if the company and Elon Musk have talked at all about this. Um, I, I think that that it's worth keeping in mind, though, with Twitter, what Katie just said. This is a company that has been through a lot of drama. The reason that Paraga CEO right now is because Jack Dorsey was, was looking into a succession plan under the uh, activist activity by Elliott Management just in the last year or so. And this is a company without uh, founder voting control. So it's unlike Facebook, unlike Google, unlike Amazon, unlike Snap. This is a company that is very vulnerable to takeovers, to M&A speculation, to activist investors, to all of that. Um, so I think that, that Elon Musk, whatever, whatever he plans to do or even hints that he might do, we know how much people follow what he says on Twitter. Now it could actually move Twitter stock every time. Katie, what is your take on his you know, potential opinion that maybe a new platform is needed. You know, you're a venture capitalist now. You're placing bets on, you know, what could be or what you believe will be the next big thing. Do you think there's room or opportunity for a new social platform? I don't really think that the world needs another centralized social media platform. Um, I think we have more urgent needs if it's climate change, if it's health uh, innovations in healthcare and economic mobility. But I do think that there's a lot of room for improvement to make sure that the platforms that we connect on are healthier, that they're safer, and that we're doing a better job of reducing a lot of the toxicity and the hate that tends to spread uncontrolled on a lot of these platforms. Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk, Sarah, have had some interaction on Twitter when Elon uh, posted that question about whether the Twitter algorithm should be open source. Jack responded saying the choice of which algorithm to use or not should be open to everyone. Um, and then a few years ago, he actually said directly that he likes how Elon Musk uses Twitter, that he's focused on solving existential problems, sharing his thinking openly. I respect that a lot, all the ups and downs that come with it, and yet we haven't heard from Jack yet today, Sarah. What do you make of that? I mean, I think it's it's almost like did Elon go out of his way to defend his his friend who is no longer CEO of Twitter? I, I mean, it seems like they have a, a bit of a, a friendly relationship, but it's unclear now what happens. It, it's it's also there are a lot of of um, liability issues now if if there's some some public discussion um, about what might happen next. It could move, like I said, move the stock, change things. And so I think everyone's just trying to be very careful about what they're going to say, if anything, um, about what happens next. And I'm, I'm really waiting to hear what, what Jack wants to do. He has talked about uh, decentralization of social media. Um, the other day, he actually tweeted that he regretted what he built. He regretted being a part of, of 
contributing to this um, very centralized viral media ecosystem. So, so I think that there's some soul searching that Jack Dorsey has done, and and maybe Elon Musk has been a part of that, or at least listening as as he tweets about it. Katie, what do you make of that? I mean, what do you think Jack is thinking now? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I'm I have no idea what he's thinking. I'm a big Jack fan. Um, I'm sure he's very thoughtful um, and thinking through what the future holds and what this new development may or may not, um, how it impacts the product and the team. But um, I have no idea what Jack is thinking. <laughs> well, we all want to know. Uh, Katie Stanton, founder and general partner of Moxie Ventures and an early Twitter employee. Thank you, along with Bloomberg's Sarah Fryer. Coming up, the Okta third-party breach. We will be joined by Okta CEO and co-founder Todd McKinnon in an exclusive interview, his first since the breach was disclosed. Just what happened and what have they learned? That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okta in focus after a security breach at one of its third parties. The breach happened in January, but Okta didn't disclose it until about two months later. And after the hacker group Lapsus claimed responsibility for the attack and posted screenshots of alleged customer accounts on Telegram. Okta and its CEO, Todd McKinnon, say he's since spoken to hundreds of customers about what happened and joins us now here in an exclusive interview, his first since disclosing the breach. Thank you so much for joining us and for being here in person. Thanks for having me. It's great to so, be here. Look, I know you've been investigating the incident. You've been talking to a lot of customers. What can you tell us right now about what exactly happened and how much damage was done? So to put it in context, as you know, Okta is the trusted identity provider for over 15,000 companies. So big, small, governments, private companies. And so anytime something like this happens, it's a big deal. And I'll, we'll talk about details and what happened, but I want to be really clear that we're responsible. 
-hmm. So third parties this and third party that. It's our responsibility to make sure this doesn't happen. And the big takeaway, there are many takeaways from us, but the big takeaway is, as we've done before, we're going to learn from our mistakes and we're going to be transparent about what we're doing differently in a concrete way, how we're going to prevent this from ever happening again. So how did it happen? So what happened was, we, as you mentioned, there's this third party call center. And they do, inside this call center, there's about 40 people that are support agents that work on behalf of Okta to provide low-level support to our customers. And this is Cytel, the third party, Correct, right? yeah. And, and the hackers broke into this site. So they used some vulnerabilities and some, actually, the competitor software to break into the site. And when they were in the site, they were able to take screenshots of what these support agents were doing on their computers. And that's what they posted on Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago. So how many customers were actually compromised? You said initially as many as 366. Yeah, and this is really important because through this whole process, we're trying to be as transparent and as conservative in our impact analysis as possible. So what we did is we said we looked at every possible customer that had any kind of support interaction over the five days in question. And that is the list of potentially impacted customers. Now, everyone is very concerned about this, and as they should be, Okta is critical infrastructure for 15,000 companies. So they, everyone assumed the worst, and we did as well, but the actual technical impact to companies in terms of what they need to do is near zero, hmm. is near zero. But it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us. What do you mean by that technical impact? The, actually what they need to do hmm. as a response to this what disclosures they need to make, so or what actually they need to change. It's actually near zero. 336, 366 companies, how many actually were compromised? Do you know yet? Potentially impacted 366. Mm -hmm. So we're drawing that line very conservatively. But because of the nature of how our system worked and our product, the Okta security technology worked well in this case. And the way our processes really limit what a support agent can actually do on these systems, the impact is near zero. So. How many of those 366 customers do you believe were impacted? It's, it's not exactly clear mm. because the hacker was essentially looking over the support agent's shoulders and looking at what was happening. So what we've done is we want to work with our customers to have a detailed analysis of what actually happened. So we've shared with all of these 366 companies detailed click-by-click -click support logs so we can work in conjunction with them to truly verify that the impact was zero. This investigation is open and it won't be closed until we get every customer to agree mm -hmm. with our assessment. You faced a barrage of criticism, including from your own customers, about the timeline with which this was disclosed. Why did you wait almost two months to share this with the public? Yeah. And only after screenshots were shared by presumably lapsed. Yeah, I've talked to hundreds of customers, and this comes up over and over. And it's unacceptable, and we're accountable for it. The facts that, when I tell people the facts, they start to get a better understanding. The facts, while we knew something happened in this time period in January, what we actually knew was that an account takeover attempt actually failed, and we detected mm -hmm. it, and there was no, it wasn't clear the impact. We didn't know the extent of the forensics report. It certainly didn't contain screenshots. Mm -hmm. So for all intents and purposes, the first time we knew about this, the severity of it, and, the, and what the hackers actually got was on March 22nd when they publicly leaked the information. Now, your initial statement also stated that Okta itself was not breached. And this was in the middle of a lot of conflicting and confusing information, not just for your customers, but for the cyber community, for journalists like myself. How do you regain the trust of the enterprise community after this? And 
for customers, prospective customers, who are saying, why should we use Okta? Well, I think it's very important. We are, we are a trusted brand, and that trust has been damaged. And we do take accountability for all the mistakes we've made. And we have made mistakes. And one of them, as you mentioned, is the communication was not as clear as it should have been. So we're trying to communicate more openly, more transparently, more consistently, and more, more, and like ultimately more clearly. And I think when customers in conversations like this understand the facts, how they unfolded, and and what we knew when, and and more importantly, as we share how we're going to do better in the future to make sure this doesn't happen again, to make sure customer support environments aren't put in an insecure place, to make sure that the communication is more timely, to make sure that the communication is clear, and there's no question about what was breached and wasn't breached. That's what we're committed to doing better next next time. What's your sense to, of to how the business will be impacted by this? Have you lost customers as a result of this? Well, it's, it's very early, so our focus has been on talking to customers and talking to prospects, and when I have those conversations and people on the management team have those conversations, what's very clear is a lot of these same same questions come up, which is why I'm so grateful for you allowing me to talk about this today. But when we address these concerns and we talk most importantly about how mistakes were made, we're taking responsibility, and how we have concrete plans to, to remediate this and make sure it doesn't happen again, mm -hmm. they're in a much better place at the end of the conversation than when they started the conversation. Now, Bloomberg has reported that the alleged mastermind of this group is a 16-year-old who lives with his mom in England. What do you make of the fact that a teenager may have pulled this off? It's, it's interesting, but ultimately, Emily, it doesn't matter because we have to protect customers against everyone, teenagers and adults and nation states and, and, and people that have various different motives. And it's incumbent upon us to make sure this never happens again. And that's including learning from all the mistakes made. And more importantly, collaborating with the broader cyber community to share open and transparent information about what happens. One of the biggest weaknesses in cyber response is people are afraid to share what happened. If you look time after time again, even this subcontractor to Okta, they were hesitant to share what they knew. Why? Because they're afraid of litigation. Mm -hmm. They're afraid of being sued, and they're afraid of reputational damage. If you look, this, this hinders our response as a community over and over again. And we have to get better at that. And we're trying to lead the way. We're trying to be a leader, be open and transparent. And if you look back at the facts we've disclosed, they're, they're all consistent. We haven't had to change anything. And so we're proud of this front-footedness and this transparency despite the mistakes we've made. Are you worried about or are you facing any or bracing for potential regulatory scrutiny as a result of A, what happened, or B, the timeline with which you disclosed it? Well, I'm, I'm very confident with the facts and, and, and how we've behaved in light of those facts. But I think the bigger question is, should there be more regulation to, to somehow try to get this logjam broken of people disclosing things? Mm -hmm. So I know the SEC is working on things, the federal government is working on things, and we would welcome that because we think the best thing to happen is to be there be more openness and more transparency in, in these kind of matters. Have you been talking to law enforcement about the incident itself, authorities in the UK. This is, so this is an ongoing investigation and we have been working with law enforcement and I think they're doing a good job in this case. So what will you be doing differently going forward? Well, like I said, there's many learnings and we're committed to not only taking those learnings, doing a deep analysis and proactively putting things in place to make sure that these problems never happen again, we're going to publish this report to our customers so, and they can collaborate and, and, and have input into this uh, retrospective. So the first thing is just to make sure that no customer support information is ever placed in an insecure environment. Now ironically here, the problem with this site is while they used Okta to log into these support systems, they didn't use Okta to protect their own front door as a company. <laughs> 
and it was a competitor product. Hmm. And the competitor product was at, at fault for this for this breach. And, and this we're going to make sure that these companies that are third parties to us use Okta, uh, among many other things, to, to ensure that their technical controls are up to the snuff that we, we should require. So this is Cytel. Do you no longer work with Cytel? We no longer work and with Cytel. And what's the product that they were using? You have to ask them. <laughs> uh, Look, uh, the Biden administration has warned of a heightened threat of cyber attacks in the midst of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. It's my understanding this didn't have anything to that's, do with that. Not that's um, our understanding, it did not, yeah. But it, how would you describe the environment in cyberspace right now? Is there chaos? It's, Is there a greater risk of any kind of cyber attack happening well, given the activity yeah. from well, Russia so and Ukraine? A couple, a couple things. First of all, all of our information shows that this was not, or indicates that this was not related. But like I said, we're very uh, diligent and we're checking every possible scenario and we're most focused on protecting all of these kinds of, kinds of things from ever happening. But everyone knows that the power of technology is so great and, and with that power comes risk. So everyone has a general heightened awareness and a heightened investment to stop these kinds of things from happening. In addition to that, this, what's happening geopolitically has everyone on edge, mm -hmm. which explains partially why so, people were so concerned and there's so much stress and strife. What ultimately has turned out to be something that's very, very minor technical, technical impact. Okta CEO and co-founder Todd McKinnon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for explaining what happened. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, coming up, Apple employees are pushing back on returning to the office after two years at home. More on what some are calling the iPhone maker's inflexible work policies next. This is Bloomberg. A few other stories we continue to watch. Workers at Apple are pushing back on returning to the office after two years working from home. The company's relatively inflexible remote work policies, some employees say, are inspiring them to look elsewhere. Workers are required to be back in the office at least once a week by April 11th, twice a week by the end of the month, and on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays by May 23rd. Plus, a Hong Kong-based digital media and e-commerce company backed by celebrity investors listing on NASDAQ via SPAC. It is called Hypebeast. Investors including Tom Brady and tennis champion Naomi Osaka. We'll be back with more of Bloomberg Technology and Elon Musk's big stake in Twitter after the break. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to our story of the day, a surge in Twitter shares after Elon Musk disclosed a 2.9% stake and boosted some of its social media rivals as well. Our Ed Ludlow back with the movers, not just Twitter, huh, Ed? Yeah, it was interesting. You did see the likes of Meta, the parent company of Facebook, of course, Snap, Google, which owns, or Alphabet, the parent company of Google, and also YouTube, make gains, kind of caught up in this optimism and interest during the Markets Day Monday in social media stocks. But, you know, that surge in Twitter raises the question, is this a positive move, Elon Musk taking a 9.2% stake in Twitter? What will happen next? Will he affect change? Well, a little earlier we heard from Kathy Wood, of course, the CEO and CEO of ARK, whose flagship innovation ETF actually shed Twitter shares earlier this year. This is what she had to say. 
I will say uh, this could be setting up for another leadership change at Twitter. Uh, you never know. And I'm not jumping to this conclusion automatically. I'm saying it's one of many possibilities. It'll either be Agrawal changing uh, the policy of the company to, you know, really open source uh, the, the, the uh, censorship uh, or, or call people out on censorship, uh, or it will be a management change. I, I don't know what's going to happen. So Kathy Wood saying she's not sure what's going to happen, but this could be a shot across the bow for the Twitter CEO, Parag Agarwal, of course. It could be a warning from Elon Musk. What was interesting is she also kind of talked a bit about the landscape for social media stocks, which, of course, have not been great this year if you're coming into my Bloomberg terminal. Just a quick point, though, that that jump in Twitter shares that we saw during Monday's session actually took Twitter pretty positive, firmly into positive territory, where you have the likes of Facebook down more than 30% year-to-date and Snap still down more than 10% yesterday. So there hasn't been much love for social media stocks. Does this put more attention on the space, M? We'll have to see. <laughs> attention indeed. We will see. Thank you. Well, Friday marked the first time ever that the software company Palantir entered space. During SpaceX's Falcon 9 launch last week, Palantir's Edge AI-enabled satellite was deployed, a milestone that could significantly speed up the delivery of data sent back to Earth. Joining me now, COO of Palantir, Sham Sankar. Sham, great to have you back with us. So what exactly is this satellite doing right now? Well, thank you for having me back, Emily. So, you know, we are so excited to have our Edge AI technology in the satellite bus of a Satellogic NewSat satellite. And what this allows us to do is quickly move AI models right next to the satellite's camera itself. So you think about the pictures we're taking, the video that you can get from space, these are massive files, and it takes so long to bring that data down to Earth. And it really introduces tremendous latency in terms of how long it takes you to leverage insights that are happening in the real world, uh, given that downlink delay. By moving the AI inferencing to space, you can do that in seconds, and you can get the information down to Earth in less than a minute. Uh, and that is a fundamental game changer. So can you share some examples of what will improve because you have this capability? When we move, so commercial space has exploded over the last decade now. We are drowning in collection. But if you think about it from, say, for example, a military commander's perspective, they're not interested in saying, when can I get the next picture over this region, perhaps a region in the Ukraine or Russia. You're, they want to know how many tanks are there, how many transport elector, erector launchers are there. They have mission questions. And how often can I revisit that? I need that information every hour. And with this capability, you can now reduce all of that latency to provide real-time insights that provide real deterrence, as we've seen in the conflict in Ukraine, and, and real insight into what's happening in the world. Now, uh, the war on Ukraine has sparked backlash against Russia's continued dominance in space, and you've got a lot of companies looking for partners as a result. Has Palantir seen any new business because of that? We have really mobilized our entire company against the invasion in Ukraine and the consequences of that. I think in many ways we believe this situation was foreseeable. And you know, at the time of our listing, we talked quite publicly about how we would not work with the Russian government and actually with Russian companies, given the overall context there. But now our software is being used to power refugee operations from Romania, Poland, Lithuania, across all of Europe. I've talked before about how supply chain is really a software problem. 
And our software here is helping, just like we do with the World Food Program. It's helping match all of the, the goods that are coming in, the beds that are available, everything that's coming from the hands of the donors to the hands of the refugees and those who need it, and doing that as efficiently and effectively as possible, given the incredible scale, millions and millions of refugees that need help in this moment. Similarly, we are helping commercial companies with their supply chains. There are a lot of automotive parts that are made in Ukraine. We've helped BMW ensure the continuity of their Munich facilities and production plans by dynamically changing their production plans to respond to the changing supply chain shocks that are, okay. that are occurring. And of course, most obviously, we have been deeply involved in helping with the military response, not just in the US, but across European nations who are on a fundamentally different footing from a defense and security posture since the invasion. How are you helping them? We're helping them uh, gain insight into what's happening on the ground. A lot of that is coming from space. A lot of that's coming from reports that are happening through different fused information sources. There's a lot that's happening on social media right now that gives you fundamental insight and, and helping drive coordination around the logistics. Uh, and a lot of that plays into refugee operations. How many folks are we expecting? How do we plan for the capacity of the folks that we need to to provide housing for it, bedding for it. There are an enormous number of orphans, I'm sad to say, that, that we're helping uh, provide a housing and shelter for as they come across the border. Now, you have talked about supply chain trends in the past, food shortages, and I'm curious, given your unique view and all of the data that Palantir has, you know, how is the supply chain crisis at this moment? Is it easing? And especially when it comes to food, which in so many parts of the world, we're short on. Yeah, I, I wish I could say it was easing. I think it's actually getting worse right now. Uh, when I look at what's happening with inflation, we had inflationary pressure from COVID. We had inflationary pressure from from Ukraine. But now it, it's it's kind of it's you know we have inflationary pressure as it relates to energy, as it relates to food. And what we're seeing is that companies that have a granular transaction level enterprise profitability data asset are the ones that are going to thrive here. They have a better ability to do revenue management. They have a better ability to uh, find substitutes in their supply chain and, and be more competitive and offer the lowest price to their customers going forward. And those that don't are really struggling to understand what this means, not only for their own profitability, but how they should be reacting and pricing the market. So I, th I think the greater challenges lie ahead of us here for the commercial world. What do you think is going to happen with the markets, Sham? I mean, Palantir shares, you know, along with the rest of big tech, have taken a nosedive since the first part of the year, though Palantir actually, since the, the war started, actually trending upwards. We had a very strong 2021. We did 41% revenue growth with 28% adjusted free cash flow. In this environment, investors are very excited to see that combination of strong revenue growth and profitability in cash on a cash generation basis. Uh, the U.S. commercial business doubled for the second year in a row. Uh, the government business grew 47% year over year. So I think you know we came out of our Q4, Q3 earnings call really thinking, wow, we're so excited about the business. It's clear from the feedback that investors are mixed. They don't quite see everything we're seeing. We went into the to the end of year call, the Q4 call, really breaking a lot of detailed cohorts out, which allowed investors to see what we were seeing in the business and why we were so excited about the performance of, of the key growth areas. U.S. commercial right. government business, and I think the market's reacting to that. Sham Sankar, COO of Palantir. Always good to have you on the show, Sham. Thank you. Coming up, 2021, it was crypto's breakout year. We're going to talk with Gemini COO Noah Perlman about their new report on global crypto trends and what's to come in 2022. This is Bloomberg.
Time for our crypto report now with crypto markets looking like they are rallying and with Bitcoin not being the lead here. Solana and Terra are among the biggest gainers in the crypto universe in the last week, a sign of a broadening rally in digital tokens, while Bitcoin over the same period remains little changed and still trading within a tight range. I want to talk about all this and much more with Noah Perlman, Chief Operating Officer of the crypto platform Gemini. Noah, great to have you with us. What's your take on what's happening in crypto markets at the moment? given all of the buzz and activity we've seen around crypto specific to the war on Ukraine. Um, Emily, great to be back on the show and thanks so much for having me on to discuss uh, Gemini's global report and all things crypto. Um, you're right, there has been so much buzz about crypto over the past year uh, and we were really excited to dig into the actual data to uncover trends in adoption, barriers to entry and general attitudes towards crypto. And uh, our survey, which did looked at uh, 30,000 respondents across 20 countries, uh, we found four, four key findings. So first, increased adoption globally. 2021 really was a breakout year. We saw crypto ownership nearly double in several key geographies, including the US. That means basically about half of the people bought their first crypto in 2021. Um, second, and interestingly, we saw that in addition to increased ownership, it was a, a real broadening of the base of crypto investors with more women and more diverse investors coming into the space. Um, third, we saw that respondents were really tuned to inflation and the responses demonstrated that inflation is a significant driver of demand in the space. Uh, and right. finally, cons finally, consumers worldwide, they continue to seek out uh, more education and regulatory clarity concerning digital assets. We're looking at India, Hong Kong, Brazil, looks like they had some big uptick. Where are you seeing the most adoption right now? Well, we're seeing the most interest in uh, developing countries where uh, there's uh, historic currency instability. Uh, and so where we see that, our theory is that, look, where, you're, where your currency is stable, uh, crypto may be a, a nice to have, uh, helps diversify your portfolio. But where we see currencies that have been devalued against the dollar, we've found that people are five times more likely to buy crypto. And there, the theory is that crypto there is not a nice to have, but a need to have. Bitcoin has been trading between $34,000 and $44,000 for most of 2022, a fairly narrow range. Do you think that's going to change? Uh, I talked to my traders about that. Uh, we do think that we're poised for um, uh, continued, continued growth uh, and price increase uh, this year. And, and a number of things are driving it. Certainly uh, inflation, which you know we've seen that worldwide where there is inflation, it's a driver of demand. And obviously we've got inflationary pressures here in the US. Um, and also the war in Ukraine um, uh, has demonstrated uh, some interest in uh, ensuring that countries are taking a look at their currencies and making sure that they aren't uh, as dependent uh, on world events. And we've seen crypto as uh, a mechanism of easing friction for cross-border payments. Uh, and so we'll see if that uh, increases uh, uh, price movement here uh, this year. What headwinds are you bracing for? Is it regulation? 
regulation continues, regulation and education continue to be the headwind. So despite the fact that we've, uh, the, the crypto markets continue to have um, a tremendous inflow of investments, uh, and we saw, look, we saw more than 10 and a half billion in investment in the space in the fourth quarter of 2021 alone, we still have regulatory uncertainty uh, and a lack of clarity. Uh, and look, this is not just in the US, it's worldwide. We have the, the sense that governments, regulators know that they've got to do something. Often they don't know what to do. So they'll make statements that aren't always helpful to industry. Uh, you'll see things like a plan for a plan or we're going to study it. Uh, and as you know, what the markets want is certainty. Uh, tell us what they are. We are more than happy to work with our regulators and we do. Um, and so we can get some clarity and, and can move forward. Noah Perlman, CEO of Gemini. Noah, good to have you back. Thanks, Emily. All right, coming up, more on Elon Musk's big Twitter stake. What does he plan to do with it? That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's get back to the story of the day. Shares of Twitter soaring after Elon Musk announced he's taken a 9.2% stake in the company, the largest of any investor. Natasha Lamb of Arjuna Capital joins us now to discuss. Natasha, as an activist investor yourself, what do you make of this? Um, well, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to say. I. I think that I believe that Elon Musk's critique is that social media companies need to be better managed. Uh, that's something we've been saying for years. They need better governance. But it's so interesting because I don't see Elon Musk as, you know, a golden child of good governance. Um, even if you just look at Tesla, where he inhabited the role of CEO and chairman uh, originally, you know, that was bad governance 101. 
Tesla's struggled with allegations of racial discrimination. They could certainly look to improve the diversity of their board. Um, and in fact, Musk has gotten, gotten in trouble on Twitter before with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, uh, for saying that funding was secured to take Tesla public when it wasn't. Um, was that free speech or was that a regulatory violation? Uh, but as part of the SEC settlement, he actually had to step down as chair of Tesla's board. Uh, again, we don't think he should have been in both roles anyway. Um, and, you know, we've seen the same uh, with Mark Zuckerberg, who, you know, I guess now another social media mogul struggled to learn that lesson, um, that unchecked power, you know, that unchecked power has been detrimental to Facebook or Meta. Um, I think that Musk has the ego and the capital, and I say this, you know, in, in the best way possible, he's got the ego and the capital to launch a new social media company to try to reform Twitter. Um, but I don't think he has the expertise uh, in terms of how to actually make that happen. Interesting. Well, you brought up the funding secured tweet, which sent shares of Tesla up. You know, he can tweet about Doge or Bitcoin and then sell a bunch of it tomorrow he could turn around and just sell this Twitter stake and he would have made a lot of money in a single day. Is there something wrong with that? Um, yeah, because that sounds like manipulation, um, not free speech. Uh, and I guess the, the question, the big question mark is what are Musk's intentions for Twitter. Um, you know, based on his tweet, it appears that Musk's beef with Twitter is free speech. Uh, but what is really needed is upholding free speech while dealing with the rampant manipulation of social media platforms. And it's not just saying, you know, oh, I like this stock or I don't, or making jokes and, um, you know, playing games like that. It's the misinformation, the disinformation, the likes of which we've seen from Russia, um, voter suppression. It's racism, sexism, uh, abuse along those lines, violence. Um, you know, think about the mass killings in El Paso, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, not to mention the insurrection on our capital. Um, and all of those issues need to be dealt with in a mosaic. Um, so I think, you know, I think Musk might be might be uh, simplifying things in a way um, that that just isn't possible. Now, Arjuna Capital still has a small stake in Twitter, as I understand it, but smaller than it once was. Why is that? I mean, take a look at the stock. <laughs> we, right. Uh, so you know. <laughs> I wonder, could Elon Musk be good for Twitter shareholders? He, you know, one thing about, you know, Elon Musk is he's a brilliant engineer and he's a systems thinker, um, but I don't think he's a human or civil rights expert, which is really what's needed. So if you look at Silicon Valley, they continue to fall over their shoelaces, figuring out how to deal with all of the issues I just mentioned, this huge mosaic. Um, but I don't see anything in Musk's background that make him the man for the job. Um, I would like, however, um, to see Musk support stronger governance at Twitter as now an outside shareholder. And that could be in the form of board members that do have human and civil rights expertise to address free speech. So, you know, we've stepped back our positions in Twitter because of, you know, all of the issues it's had. Um, but, you know, we do still own some Twitter and we actually 
have a proposal going to a vote on May 25th asking Twitter to add um, board members with human and civil rights expertise. That gets exactly to Musk's point Interesting. on free speech. That's what, you know, that's what it's about. So maybe the best outcome is that Musk can throw his weight behind that proposal and, and support now some efforts to improve Twitter's board. Now, of course, Jack Dorsey left fairly abruptly last year, left SEO, left the board, but is still a fairly large shareholder, has 2.3% stake. We haven't heard from Jack. You know, what was your experience in dealing with him as an activist investor, and what do you imagine he's thinking? I think, you know, I think it's a tough job, right? Um, and it was tough for Jack Dorsey, uh, who was also splitting his time. Uh, I think he was a, a well-intentioned individual that tried to do the right things at Twitter um, and, you know, and took some steps to do that. And, you know, of course, because it's such a... a, a uh, a huge mosaic. You're going to get criticism from both sides. Um, I, I think it was the right choice for him to step down and, you know, have the new CEO have this be his full-time job. Um, but there's still work to be done to make, you know, to to transform the town square, if that's what this is. Um, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time on Twitter, but it's a small um, chunk of the population and the manipulation that's happening over these platforms is is really unfortunate. Um, so you know we'll see what happens, but there there's there's room for improvement, and, so, and maybe Musk can be part of that. Indeed. All right, Natasha Lamb. Lot of open questions. Thank you so much for weighing in and trying to answer some of those. Natasha Lamb of Arjuna Capital. Thank you as always. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We are back here tomorrow. We're going to be joined by Kristen Smith, Executive Director of the Blockchain Association. And we'll also have an exclusive conversation with Johnny Price of WeFunder. Don't forget to check out our new podcast as well. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts for the daily Bloomberg Tech News Roundup. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.